Saving money in your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. Sump pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half horsepower cast iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards and don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Cool. Sexy cool. There's only one Lenny Kravitz and you gotta love him. He's won the Grammy Award for Best Male Vocal Performance four years in a row. He starred in a growing number of films, but most recently as Cinna in The Hunger Games. I got to know him from our time together on the set of the film, The Butler. But his many accomplishments hardly scratched the surface of who he really is. As the son of actress Roxy Roker, who played Helen Willis on The Jeffersons, and NBC News producer and jazz promoter Cy Kravitz, Lenny grew up in New York City among a who's who of artists, actors, poets. Following his lifelong passion for music, Lenny created a sound that was just as unique as he was. At first, critics and executives didn't know what to think of it. Was it soul music? Was it rock? But Lenny forged ahead, recording an album on his own. And the album was a hit. He sang that you gotta let love rule, and for more than 20 years, he has done just that. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Lenny Kravitz. I'm used to being alone, and I'm used to doing whatever it is that I want to do. A lot of that has to do with growing up as an only child in the house and having to entertain myself, which then led to, I guess, how I make my art. I mean, I do a lot of it by myself, playing all the instruments and then just doing my thing. When you're in the recording studio, you control what's going on, how it sounds. You put it together, you're making your own painting, and you have control over everything. When you go out live, no matter how much you've rehearsed and you know, no matter how great your crew is and your sound guy and the whole thing, when you get up on that stage, it all just goes where it wants to go. I'm one that when I get off stage, I don't like it. This wasn't good enough, that wasn't good enough. I want this better, I want that better. And I used to be really hardcore about it to the point where I wasn't having the fun that I should have been having. And I'll never forget Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. He's like, I wanna go on tour. And I had this huge tour going on at the time, and he came on tour with me. And he saw my attitude, and he came into the dressing room one night and basically went off on me for being too controlling, for not having fun, for not embracing this gift and enjoying it for what it is. And he hit me with it, and I knew he was right. And that changed everything for me. He taught me to let go. It was the beginning of me letting go. It's beautiful when somebody has the nerve to tell you straight. I prefer that personally. I appreciate it. And it causes me to grow. He really saved it for me, the whole thing of touring and playing live. He's like, you know, we had fun when we did this stuff. We, you're being too serious. Like, you're trying to control this and make it be this thing that just, just let go. 
And uh, that was good enough for me. <laughs> My mother was extremely warm, a really incredibly loving woman. Came from a very loving family, had a great sense of family, and really was extraordinary in the sense that she put others first. She was incredibly kind and very fair. She had many friends that really respected her, respected her opinion, and that liked being around her. You know, she wasn't someone who would gossip about people. She was very anti-gossip. And she was a very good gauge of character. My father, at the end of the day, was a man who had a lot of love and sensitivity in him. But he was really hardcore, super heavy disciplinarian. He wasn't the kind of man to talk a lot, just kind of bam, 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 just blunt. And, and I was afraid of him as a, as, a, as a child. He had a father who was difficult with him, I think. At a very young age, he went through the military. He was a Green Beret. He ended up being a sergeant. He felt that he had to be this tough person. And then his younger brother, Leonard, who I'm named after, followed him to the military and was killed in the line of duty. And then my father was blamed for his death in the family. So that was another thing that I think really messed him up. All of those sensitive qualities were, were just killed and it completely changed him. I didn't think about my parents being different races. It wasn't something that I thought about. It wasn't something that was discussed. I grew up around people of all colors and all religions and backgrounds, so this was normal to me. Our house was full of everything and everybody. I knew that my father physically looked different from my mother, but that wasn't an issue to me. People looked different. I went to, to my first day of first grade, and uh, my parents walked me to school, and we were walking in the hallway, and a kid ran up to us and pointed his finger, and he yelled, your father's white. And it was, it was like, yeah, what? I, I didn't understand what that was about and why that was an issue and why this kid, like, <laughs> called me out <laughs> in the middle of this hallway first day of school. And that was the first day that I had to think about it. It just let me know, okay, this is how folks think. When school, you'd have these things you'd have to fill out sometimes, you know, and it's race. And there would be, I'm like, well, okay, my great-grandmother's Cherokee Indian, my father's a Russian Jew, my mom's Bahamian. What the hell do I put on this thing? But then the teacher or somebody come over and, black, that's what you are. And so, so many parts of your heritage are just squashed. That's it. You're that. And I didn't like that. And then my mother explained to me that uh, I should be proud of both sides, that I am no more one than the other. But she said that society will see you only as black. And that, that was a really good lesson. And again, I don't know if I understood that at age six, first day of first grade, but after some time and some living, I understood what she meant. <laughs> because that's the way it is.
there's always so many powers trying to pull us away from our natural being and say that we have to be this way. I was told that my whole life. You're too this, you're too white, you're too black, you're not black enough, you're not white enough, you're this, you're that, you don't fit. There's no box for you, so you need to do this or do that, and change this, and, and that was the story of my life. I mean, I was always told by those folks that I couldn't be who I wanted to be, because who I wanted to be, there wasn't a, uh, a box with a nice, neat ribbon for it. I was extremely blessed to understand my calling. I knew from the time I was a baby that I wanted to make music, and it started with pots and pans in the kitchen. It started with the toy xylophone and the little toy instruments. By the time I was five and saw my first concert, the Jackson Five, that was it. After that night, that was it. I was done. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And that worked for me. I'm really happy that I knew that. I always had something to focus on. I always had a dream, had a vision. And I don't understand not knowing. Meaning, you know, you, you meet a lot of people who say, well, I, you know, I don't know what I want to do. And although I can intellectually understand what that means, I have no idea what that feels like. So I, therefore, I don't really understand it because I've always known. And I can't imagine what it would feel like to not know. When my parents first got married, they were living on the Upper East Side. My father was working at NBC News. So he was working at Rockefeller Center. So was my mother. She was a uh, secretary, and then she was moonlighting. Uh, she was doing her theater at night. And they were extremely busy, so I would stay with my grandparents on Troop and Kosciuszko in Bed-Stuy. My parents would come see me every day after work, spend the evening with me, have dinner with me, play with me, put me to bed, and then they would go back to the city and do their thing, and I'd be with my grandparents. And then on the weekends, we would reverse. I would go back up to the Upper East Side on the weekends to be with my parents. That was my life for the first five years. I think it was a very rich upbringing in the sense that as a young child, I got to experience really two different lifestyles. Where I lived on the Upper East Side, you know, it was 82nd between 5th and Madison. You had a lot of people with money living up there. You know, I went to great schools. And then Bed-Stuy was sort of like this very freeing place for me. The people were bit more laid back, a bit more open, and shared more even though they had less. I mean, most of my friends in, in the neighborhood were, you know, drinking out of jelly jars and, you know, we were sitting around old linoleum tables on, on milk crates. I mean, you know, this, it was like that. So going between those two contrasts, I think it really shaped me. Of course, growing up in New York City at this time, this early 70s New York City vibe was really strong. Theater was vibrant, music was vibrant, art was vibrant, people were vibrant. There was still an amazing grit to the city and artists were just so colorful and being around all of these colorful people, you know, people like James Earl Jones, you know, Miles Davis, and Sarah Vaughan and all of these kind of people. I'm sitting on this guy's lap. He's playing the piano. He's this guy. I'm five, right? What do I know? I don't know that I'm sitting on Duke Ellington's lap. I'd go anywhere from the Cafe Carlisle to see Bobby Short to the Apollo to see 
James Brown to Lincoln Center to see the pianist Andre Watts. From there to, you know, seeing Broadway shows or a lot of off-Broadway. My mother was in the Negro Ensemble Company and I got to see a lot of really great productions. I had the Metropolitan Museum as my backyard. So having all of this, it definitely filled me up. My mother was in a play called The River Niger, which was on Broadway. She was nominated for a Tony Award for Best Actress. Norman Lear saw her in that production, invited her out to L.A. to audition for this TV show that was going to be called The Jeffersons, which was going to be a spinoff from All in the Family. That brought us to Los Angeles, which brought me to the California Boys Choir because my mother wanted me to be off the streets <laughs> and have something to do and focus on. And they were rated the number two boy choir in the world next to the Vienna Boys Choir. So this was like a really prestigious thing. And uh, we'd, we'd leave our parents all summer and go train before the concert season. We would have to walk in choir, which would be the drop of a hat. You'd line up in two lines, tall to small, or small to tall, and we'd walk in these two lines. And everywhere we went, that's how we walked. And when we would get somewhere, we'd be, we would sit down in a certain way. We ate a certain way. We got up to get our food a certain way. We had to learn 10, 11, 12 languages to sing in, because we sang with the New York City Opera. So you'd be singing in different languages every day. You know, then, then we'd, we'd be singing with Los Angeles Philharmonic or the Joffrey Ballet, or we'd be recording with Zubin Mehta. And being around all of these incredible artists was really, you know, a gift. We trained all day and night. And I got sick. I had the flu and I got sent to this infirmary where this other kid was. He and I were in this room together for days, getting checked on and getting better. And one day he just started talking to me. He's like, um, do you know about Jesus Christ? And I said, well, I've, I've heard of him, but what, you know? And he started to tell me, this is, this is a kid now. He starts telling me all about Christ and all this scripture and things and was, you know, just talking to me and reading to me. And it's quite interesting because you have these two like young boys just sitting there talking and having this great conversation about God and love and Christ and all of this. And that night, I can't explain it to you, but the presence of God was in the room. Not just, I'm talking about something really heavy and thick, and the two of us felt it. It was something that just kind of came over us. And we were both crying because whatever this presence was, was so overwhelming that it just, it just hit you in your spirit. That was it. it. No explaining, no. And I knew that it was, we were having an experience with God that was a, a, a true experience the spirit, the being, the power that created me was right there with me. I didn't need to go to anybody to deal with God. I didn't need to, it was just right there. It was a personal experience. My relationship with my grandfather was extremely deep, probably the most important individual in my life. He really was my father figure in a healthy kind of way. I loved my father, my father was, a, was my father but we had our dynamics and, and so we didn't really have that kind of relationship. So my grandfather and I were very close. He was a very hardworking man, very dedicated. He was born in Inagua, Bahamas. 
which is the southernmost island closest to Cuba. And he was the man of the house at age seven, lost his father, had a mother and four brothers and sisters that he had to take care of because his mother was ill. And uh, he went from Inagua to Nassau, from Nassau to Miami to make his life, to figure out how to make money, how to support this family. And he was very adamant about bringing me up with these values that he had, about creating a very strong foundation and being disciplined so that you would follow through, so that you would always see your goal. You would go through all the proper steps to see your goal. You know, my grandfather used to, when he moved to Los Angeles, he would come up to the house at 5 a.m. before school. I was probably up all night doing God knows what, and I would awaken to water droplets coming down on my head, on my forehead, drop by drop, with this nice pause in between each one. <laughs> and I would wake up, and here was this man standing over me with this water thing, and. Good morning, Grandpa. What, what, what's up? Um, I want you to put your clothes on and meet me in the backyard. Why? What? what? Just do it. You know, there was no back talking. Get to the backyard. Okay, I want you to go over to that tree and you see that tree needs pruning. I want you to get the, cut the branches and get, you know, do this and do that and pile them up. Then it would be about chopping the wood, making the piles of the different sizes of wood, stringing them up getting them all together, dragging them one by one back up the hill to the front of the house. And I would say to him, why, why are you making me do this? Mom's on a TV show. <laughs> we can have somebody come do this. Like, why am I doing this? And he would say to me, because I need you to understand follow through, completing each step to get the result that you're looking for. And uh, it drove me crazy. <laughs> but it was wonderful. And between that and the experience in the choir, I knew how to accomplish things. I knew how to take the steps. And that has turned me into an incredibly driven individual. When Lenny was a teenager living in Los Angeles, his relationship with his father deteriorated. His father had a lifelong struggle with what Lenny calls a love of women. Seeing the toll the extramarital affairs had on his mother led to arguments with his dad. The situation became too much to bear, and at 15, Lenny decided he'd had enough. I left home at 15. I hit the streets when I was 15. I had to go. I felt it was time to go. My father and I weren't seeing eye to eye at all. We're having a lot of complications in our relationship, and I left. And I had a good enough of a background that when I hit the streets, I could function, because I mean, I hit the street. I was in the middle of all kinds of things and all kinds of people, and uh, just out there in LA, living in cars, living on floors, living in people's apartments, living in recording studios, living, you know, wherever, and hanging out with all kinds of folks. Tina Marie, who recently passed, was an amazing singer, songwriter, musician, producer, I can't remember where we met, maybe in a recording studio somewhere. And we started talking and we became friendly and she realized that I was kind of living all over the place, didn't really have a place. 
and she invited me to live with her. Took me to recording sessions, took me to concerts, let me really just sit in on everything and see how things were done and encouraged me. I mean, fed me, took care of me, really made a, a huge difference in my life. She was a perfectionist as well, really disciplined, knew her stuff, and so it just reinforced all of these things that I'd already had. But now it was in my arena. You know, it was the classical thing was wonderful and taught me so much and I loved it. But now I was finished with that and I was getting into my music, into rock and roll and funk and all of this. Now I'm actually around somebody who's doing what it is that I want to do. So I got to be around that same level of discipline and artistry, but it was now something that I could look at and say, okay, that's, that's what I want to do. I've had so many people in my life that have helped me, that have given me love, that have taken me in, and that taught me to be very giving as well, because we all need help at some point, you know? My mother loved my father, my father loved my mother. My father just liked women and liked having other lives with other women. And my mother dealt with it, but it got to a point where it just got too much out of hand. And uh, my mom could no longer be involved in that, even though she still loved him and wanted to stay with him. My father was getting ready to leave and move out, which was the last resort my mother would have wanted. But it had gotten to that point. So my mother sat us down in the den and said, do you have anything to say uh, to your son and before you leave? And he looked at me in my face, standing up, and said, you'll do it too, and walked out. But, you know, I found out around that time that his father had done the same thing. So I can understand now, whatever spirit was working inside of him was saying, well, I fell victim to it. And unfortunately, you're gonna do the same thing because you're part of this lineage here, which it was the wrong answer. It, it messed me up. It took me many, many, many years to deal with it. It took me many years to even digest it. I don't think it even reared itself until many years later. They were hard words, and it affected me deeply. Words are extremely powerful. Words are extremely powerful. Well, first of all, I had to learn how to deal with those words that were put on me and how to not be that person. And that took a lot because my own father was that example of not doing the right thing. And we all have both of our parents in us. We all do things that we say, man, that was like, that was just like my father. I can't stand that I just did or said that. So I had to really look out for those qualities and work on them, and I'm still working on them. Remember the Cosby Show and the Huxtable's lovable older daughter, Denise, played by Lisa Bonet? Well, Lenny met Lisa backstage at a concert, and the two immediately hit it off. They became great friends and soon fell madly in love. They got married. Their marriage didn't work, but they had a beautiful daughter together named Zoe. Zoe has said, don't let those leather pants fool you. He's a real dad. I love that. 
And when you watch him, you can see that he clearly loves being a real dad. What I took from all the experiences that I had as far as being married and going through divorce and then having to get the relationship back on track as far as being friends and being family and raising a daughter, and you got to keep moving. You got to keep moving forward and upward. Zoe's mom and I were incredibly and deeply in love. It was a magical, magical relationship and a magical time in my life. She really helped to bring out the best in me and inspired me. We were very young and it was wonderful. And we had Zoe, which is, I see now, you know, what it was all about. It was really all about bringing this beautiful child to the planet and also sharing the love that we had. Zoe's mom and I now are best friends. It's interesting because that's how the relationship started. But it makes you feel really good when you can do that. When we're all together now, her man, her kids, Zoe, me, we're all together and we're one big happy family. It's beautiful and it just shows you what can be done. I was really fortunate to see how my mother was with her father. My grandfather would you know, come up to the house and be with us all day and be with my mother all day. And, and then my grandfather would leave. And then I would see my mother on the phone. She'd be on the phone for like an hour. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to daddy. You're, he was here all day. He just left and now you've been on the phone with him for an hour. And that's how they were. They were so close that even though he'd be at the house all day, once he got home, they'd find the next thing to talk about and they'd be on the phone. Now that's the kind of relationship I have with my kid. That's a really uh, powerful relationship. And that's a beautiful thing. I know that Zoe has to be who she is and I'm not trying to stifle that, nor did I ever try to stifle that. I tried to give her the same steps, <laughs> you know, and make sure she had her foundation. I was stern at times, but we got on so well and do get on so well that we were able to talk not to hold things in, and she was free to express. And I'm definitely not a jealous father. You know, a lot of fathers are jealous, not at all. And I understand, you know, having to go out into the world and find yourself. So when it was time to let go, it was, it was really simple, because I had done it, and I knew what it was all about, and I knew that that's what a person needs to do. I remember when my father was in the hospital dying, and he's going through his sickness and started to sort of have this spiritual awakening and started to really explain things. I think that he realized sitting there in this bed in the hospital that what is this front I'm trying to keep up? Like, like life is almost over and I'm still sitting here trying to keep this front up. Why? And he told me, he said that he felt that there was this monkey on his back. That's exactly how I put it. And that he didn't know how to get it off and that he knew he was doing things that he shouldn't be doing or he was acting contrary to, you know, the spirit that was inside of him. He wanted to be somebody else. But this thing kept grinding him, kept riding him. I think he just got tired and realized it's over now and the best thing I can do is surrender and find that person inside of me that's really me. And he began to explain a lot of things that I'd been trying to get answers to for decades. 
he told us all that he was sorry for certain things and that he loved us. And we, I mean, was being really sincere. It was really emotional. And he was never the type to be that expressive with his kids and just explain things. It was like, look, I, I'm sorry. I, I, this is what happened to me. And this is how I behaved. And this is what I thought. But you know what? It's all wrong. And I just want to start fresh right now. And it was, it was wonderful. So I was able to forgive and accept right then and there. Finding out at the end didn't bother me because I finally got to see my father for, for who he really was. Forgive and accept. Nicely said, Lenny. What a powerful lesson to learn at any point in our lives. And the fact that Lenny Kravitz was able to make peace with his father before he died is a real act of forgiveness and love. And what a gift it was to have his grandfather teach the importance of follow-through by stacking wood and how growing up straddling so many different worlds really helped Lenny to find his own voice and his own style. And whatever he does, Lenny is tapped into the real flow of his life. For him, it isn't the fame or fortune that matters most. We can see that. It's the love. I enjoy things. I enjoy beautiful things. I enjoy great lines and design and integrity of how things are made. And, but at the same time, I find that when I am being extremely simple, that I'm the most free and uh, I'm happy. And when I have less choices, that's less time thinking about what it is I should be wearing, doing, how, whatever it is. And I'm free to really focus on me, my art, what it is I'm doing. My trailer's on the beach in the Bahamas. It's a little Airstream trailer. And it's, uh, it's this just cozy, safe womb. There's not a lot of room. <laughs> But you feel, you feel really free in there because you know what your boundaries are, you know? It feels really good to be constricted to a small space like that. My life has always been about contrasts. It, it always has been. That's just what I'm attracted to. But at the end of the day, the simple way wins. I guess the main lesson would be to love when you really don't even feel like it. It's not about your mood and how you feel. It's about the commitment to love. We all judge and we all have our opinions on how things should be and how people should act. And we get turned off if somebody acts a way that doesn't line up with the way we want things to be. And at the end of the day, we're all different. So when it really comes down to it, it comes down to unconditional love and acceptance of the people that are around you, that you choose to be around people that you choose to love. It's a choice. It's a choice. And when you let go and you just let people be who they are and you yourself learn how to love them for who they are, it's a very freeing experience. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.
Saving money in your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. Sump pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half-horsepower cast-iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards and don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards.